Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, you can open your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. And uh, before we get into the text, uh, just a few things that I want to mention to you by way of announcement. Um, So I I prayed for our annual meeting here just a moment ago. That is coming up. Just a a reminder, January 25th, it's a Monday night, 7 p.m., our annual congregational business meeting. If you're a member of the church, this is actually one of your responsibilities to come to that meeting, so do everything you can to be there. Uh, We review the past year, look ahead to the next year. We see the budget for 2021. And uh, we also are going to elect as a congregation uh, men who are on the ballot to serve as elders and deacon. Um, I, I shouldn't say we're going to elect them. I should say it's up to you as to whether you want to elect them. <laughs> uh, so there's going to be two men on the ballot for the office of deacon, and that's Brad Kendall and Chris Potts. And then there will be one man on the ballot for the office of elder, and that's Brandon Dykstra. All three of these guys and their families were here uh, earlier service, so I wish I could introduce you to them, but I can't. But you can get to know more about them with this uh, officer candidate sheet that is available at the Welcome Center. Uh, There's just some questions for them to answer. Uh, Very briefly, this will tell you a little more about these guys. But this is your opportunity, members of New Life, to determine who you want to lead this congregation. Uh, So it's a significant responsibility and uh, would encourage you to take it seriously. And one of the ways that you can know these guys better is next Sunday at 10 o'clock, in between the two services, we're going to have a Q&A session with them. Uh, so pray for them. It's not an easy thing <laughs> for elder and deacon candidates to do, but they're willing to do it. And so we'll be, I think, in the fellowship hall, and you will have an opportunity to ask questions to them, and they'll do their best to answer them. And it's a way for you to get to know them better so that you can vote in good conscience uh, at the annual meeting. So that's not the only thing that happens at the annual meeting, but it's a, it's a big part of it. Again, Monday night, January 25th, 7 o'clock. Also, um, our missions team is bringing Virginia Yip here next weekend. Virginia has been here before. She is a missionary to China. She's Chinese herself, uh, but she lives in Shanghai. She's been here in the United States for a little while, getting ready to go back to Shanghai, and is going to come down and, and hang out with us for a little while before she heads back. And so next weekend, she'll be here. She'll be here Sunday morning, but she'll also be here Saturday morning at 10 a.m. We're going to have a breakfast for Virginia, and you're all invited to come and uh, just listen to Virginia, and you can ask your questions, and if you're interested in uh, the ministry of the gospel in China, uh, she's the one to talk to. She knows what's going on, and um, be a great opportunity to encourage her also uh, if a number of us are willing to come out. So breakfast is provided. There is a sign-up sheet also at the Welcome Center. It would really help us to know how many people are coming. So please put your names down there if you plan to come. That's Saturday morning, 10 a.m. with Virginia. Yep. All right. Thank you for your patience with those things. Genesis chapter 5. Let's get to the Word of God here this morning. <clears throat> if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have Bibles for you underneath the chairs in front of you, and it would very much help you if you had a Bible open. Uh, text is on page three of those paperback Bibles. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the movie Forrest Gump. 
I uh, can't believe it's been more than 25 years now since this movie has been released. So the younger among us maybe haven't seen this movie, but this is a very famous movie, Forrest Gump, um, guy played by Tom Hanks. There's Tom Hanks there, and he's running, and that becomes kind of a theme in the movie. Uh, in the movie, uh, Forrest Gump says uh, that uh, for, for no particular reason, he says, he decided he'd just get up and start running. And he was just going to run to the end of the road. But when he got to the end of the road, he thought, nah, I'm just going to run across the county. And so he keeps running. And then he decides, for no particular reason, that he's just going to run across the whole state of Alabama. And once he gets done with that, he decides, you know what? I'm just going to run across the entire nation. I'm going to go to the ocean for no particular reason. And so if you listen carefully to the dialogue, that phrase is repeated. For no particular reason. I'm just running. I'm on the move. But for no particular reason. And I wonder if you sometimes feel like your life is like that. You are running and you are on the move, but maybe you're not really sure what the reason is for that. You feel like you're always on the go, but for what reason? Is it for no particular reason or is it for some particular reason? We get up, we go to work, we go to class, we take out the trash. Why? What, what's, what's the reason for it all? Even as we look at the whole span of human history, we might have a similar question. We live our lives, some of us have children and we die and our children grow up and then they, some of them have children and then they die and their children grow up and maybe they have children, maybe not, but then they die and their children, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And it seems sometimes <coughs> like it's all happening for no particular reason. One of the reasons why this uh, is so, I think, interesting to a lot of people, or the reason why maybe a movie like Forrest Gump is so popular is because this is the way a lot of people think in our culture. Uh, there's a guy named Douglas Murray who observes that this is the first time in human history that we have had a society, Western society, where there is no agreed-upon explanation for why we're here. No consensus for why we exist. Because the idea of a, of a God for whom we live has been removed from our consciousness. We've become almost totally secularized. And we don't know why we're here. And so you get movies with guys like Forrest Gump running across the nation for no particular reason. Well, we're going back to Genesis here today. We're in chapter 5. Um, <clears throat> That means last time we were in chapter 4, and you might remember the story of Cain and Abel. It was kind of an interesting story. I mean, there's a lot of drama and intrigue, and there's a murder in there, you know. I mean, it's the kind of thing that uh, a lot of people find interesting. And now we get to chapter 5, and when I read this to you, you might think, are you kidding me? <laughs> are, are you you're really going to preach a sermon on this? It doesn't quite have the same drama and intrigue as chapter 4. But the answer is yes, we are going to have a sermon on Genesis chapter 5 because the New Testament tells us that all Scripture is profitable and useful for the person of God. That all of Scripture was written to instruct us and to encourage us. And that includes Genesis 5. It doesn't include just the dramatic and well-known text. It includes even a passage like this. And so we're going to read this and take a look and see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. What this is is basically a genealogy. So it's mostly a list of names. And 
it is actually in the Bible for a particular reason. And the reason it's here is to link the events of chapter four, Cain and Abel, with the events of chapter six, which is the story of Noah. And almost all of you are familiar with that. We'll start that next week. But in between those two events come chapter five that shows all the generations that have existed between Cain and Noah. And it's the writer's way, it's God's way, it's Moses' way, the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that from generation to generation and century after century, God is at work in history. God's fulfilling his purposes. God hasn't forgotten what he said he was going to do. It seems routine, it seems endless, it seems sometimes meaningless, but it's not. All of history is informed with the meaning that God gives us even a chapter like chapter five here that seems so routine and meaningless as we go through the, the, uh, the, the uh, repetition of this text. Nonetheless, it's here for a reason. It's here for our encouragement. So if you are able to stand, please do so. <clears throat> this will take a few minutes for me to read through this whole chapter. But here's Genesis chapter five beginning in verse one. <clears throat> This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan, Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. 
saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Holy Spirit, would you please come and illumine our hearts and minds as we look at your inspired word before us in Genesis 5 today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what is it that makes sense of our lives, that assures us that there is a reason for all that we do? Uh, The first thing that I'm going to show you here is uh, not a bombshell statement at all. Pretty simple, but perhaps we need to be reminded of it, and it's this, that you were created by God. You are a creation of Almighty God. So chapter five begins by kind of going back to the beginning. So, you know, we just want to follow what the text says. And so chapter five, verse one, this is the book of the generations of Adam, the generations, the genealogy of of Adam. So Moses here is going all the way back to the beginning. When God created man, it says, he made him in the likeness of God. Now we're Christians here, most of us here, I think, Christians, and and perhaps we we believe this, but uh, this needs to be repeated, I think, because this is not at all the general consensus of the world in which we live. Uh, There's not unity on this matter at all. Many people would say, we're not created by God. We are just randomly evolved creatures largely because of the influence of a guy named Charles Darwin, um, who has put forth this theory of evolution that says that over the course of time, what has happened is that you and I have just evolved from lower life forms, lower animal forms, uh, through various uh, variations and adaptations, just kind of unfolded randomly and accidentally over millions and millions of years and just over time we have humanity and all of us in this room we've all evolved from animals we're all basically animals is what the darwinian view would say now this is largely accepted it's taught in our schools it's assumed by many people it's not always challenged at all but it's certainly contrary to what the bible is telling us the scripture says very clearly, this is the book of the generations of Adam, God created man. And if we're going to adopt this view that we're just randomly evolved over time, we shouldn't be surprised if we start doing things for no particular reason because it's awfully hard to find any meaning or any purpose or any transcendent values in a world in which all humanity is just an accident. But friends, I just want to tell you, and I hope you believe this and know this, you are not an animal. You're different. You're distinct. You have been created in a more exalted status than a cat or a dog or a cow or a deer. You're not a biological machine. You're not an accident. You're not here by accident. You're here by a specific intentional plan of a God who created you and wants you here. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, is what the scriptures would say. And so the the passage goes on to just remind us of a couple of things about creation. Now this is ground that we've covered 
uh, we went through Genesis 1 and 2 in detail. And so if you were here at that time, you, you heard me mention some of these things, but they're repeated here in the text. And so let's just look at these briefly. One aspect of being created by God is to know that we're created male and female. That's what it says in verse 2. Male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them and named them man when they were created. God gives us a name, man or mankind. But the way God creates us is in two genders, male and female. Now, of course, that also is not something that's widely accepted in our culture today. It's disputed uh, in many corners. And uh, the word binary maybe is one that you've heard. The word binary simply describes what the Bible is saying here, that there are two genders, male and female. If you're non-binary, that means you confront or challenge this idea that there are just two genders. The Bible is presenting a binary view, but again, it's rejected frequently and it has led to just a whole new vocabulary in our culture for how we talk about the genders. We have transgender, which just means that uh, a, a, person, a, a person's sense of his or her own gender does not match that person's physical biological sex. They, they, their, their biological sex indicates that they're a female, but they feel like they're a male, and so they want to transition from one to the other. That's, that's transgender. Um, gender fluid, you might hear sometimes if you watch the news. Gender fluid just means that the whole idea of gender is something that can be constantly changing and, and moving from one to the other. It's fluid. I mean, you can be a man and then go to a woman and go back to a man, and you can go back and forth. It's fluid. You should never feel like you're nailed down to either one. Uh, there's pangender, which doesn't even limit the genders to two that you go back and forth between, but there might be multiple genders that you can identify with. And then cisgender is the word that is used for uh, those who hold to the biblical view, basically. It's generally mostly used in the LGBT community to describe people who think that gender is binary, that it's just male or female, cisgender. Not a term that we typically use, but that the LGBT community uses for those who hold uh, a biblical view. Not really a pejorative term, but just the term that they use to, to describe our view. So um, <clears throat> it's really pretty natural to understand how this kind of thinking can follow from a world in which we no longer accept that there is a creator. Because if there's not a God who has made everything, if there's not a God who has assigned to us certain roles, if we are just a random accident, we're just evolving over years, then why shouldn't we just reinvent ourselves and make ourselves whatever we want to be? Why not? I mean, it really follows logically very easily from a secular kind of world view. But um, as Andrew Walker says, <clears throat> the God who creates us is the God who assigns to humans what humans are, what humans are supposed to do, and how humans are to do it. Being creatures means that our highest calling and greatest pleasure is found in living in line with how God designed us. It's not actually found in reinventing yourself and being whoever you want to be. The highest, greatest calling and pleasure is found in living in line with how God has created us. And according here to Genesis 5, male and female. He created them. But then secondly, the other aspect of creation here is that we're created in God's image. 
And so it says that at the end of verse one, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. It says likeness there, not image. Uh, Back in Genesis one, it says image and likeness. I think those terms kind of used interchangeably. This is referring to Adam. God created man, referring to Adam. God made Adam in the likeness and image of God. And, you know, we might accept that. But I think an interesting question, though, that maybe you have thought of is, well, did that image continue on, though, past Adam? I mean, maybe God made Adam in the image of God, but then the fall came, and now the image is interrupted, and all of us are just animals. But no, look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So Adam and Eve have Seth. Seth is made in Adam's likeness and image. It doesn't necessarily say Seth in God's image. I get that. But Adam is made in God's image, and Seth is made in Adam's image. I think the conclusion we can draw is that Seth is made in God's image. In other words, what the text is telling us is that this image does. It it, it is perpetuated. It continues. It moves down the generations. Moves from Seth to Enosh, it moves from Enosh to Kenan, it moves through all of these people listed in chapter 5, and eventually over the years it got to your great-great-grandfather, and then it was moved down to your grandfather, or your great-grandfather, and then your, your grandfather, and then your father, and then to you. The image of God was given to you, passed down over all of these generations you are godlike. I mean, I know that sounds like a crazy statement, and if somebody says that, you think, man, that guy's got a pride arrogance problem. But the scriptures do say that. There's a sense in which we resemble God. We are godlike. We're fallen, we're sinful, but the sin that has entered the world has not eradicated the image of God that exists in every single person. Friends, this is so important for us to understand. This is such a foundational doctrine, particularly when we start thinking of ethical issues. When you think of something as horrible as the Holocaust, I mean, here's one of the reasons why the Holocaust happened, is because people didn't see Jews as made in the image of God. When we think of our own history in the United States, the history of slavery and racism that has happened and the way African Americans have been treated, one of the reasons that's happened is because people didn't see African Americans as made in the image of God. And when you think of the abortion issue, 60 plus million babies aborted in this country. One of the reasons that has happened is because people don't see the unborn as made in the image of God. I mean, once you lose a sense of that, it's open season, friends. But the scripture tells us, no, we're we're made in the image of God. The unborn, every race, the elderly, even people who would seem to have really no value to our society is still made in the image of God and deserving protection. So it just seems to me the very worst atrocities in human history happen when people forget this doctrine. And here we are living in a society where it seems like that doctrine is beginning to get forgotten. So that's why we exist as a church, friends. That's one reason why. So we can testify to this. We can teach this. We can proclaim this. And we can live in line with it in the way we treat all people who are made in his image. So that's the first point. We are 
created in the image of God. But now, here's the second point, and it's this, that you are certain to die. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> Happy New Year, you are going to die. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear that that's a theme of this chapter. And isn't it true that this is a major problem for humanity? It's, it's the certainty of death. It can't be avoided. It's a shadow that hangs over everything we do and all the plans we make and all the relationships that we have, all the people that we love, hanging over it all is this black cloud of the certainty of death. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And you've noticed that here, this repeated phrase, right? Verses uh, 4 and 5, referring to Adam. He lives 800 years. Then he lives some more years, 930 years, and he died. Seth, verses 6 through 8, he ends up living 912 years, and he died. Enosh, verses 9 through 11, 905 years, he lives, and he died. I don't need to keep reading it. You get the pattern. It goes on and on again. Every single person between Seth and Noah, they all died. Now, you might ask, what are the reasons for all these super long lifespans? Uh, you know, people living hundreds of years. I did a little research to see who is the longest living person in, I guess, anyway, modern recorded history. And uh, there's this woman named uh, Jean Calmont who lived to be 122. <laughs> and she just died in 1997, and she smoked until she was 117. <laughs> and yet lived to be 122 years old. Now, that's impressive. That's, that's amazing. And yet, really, it's nothing like what we're reading here in Genesis 5 either, particularly when you look at this guy, Methuselah, in verse 27, who lives 969 years. Almost 1,000 years. Now, how do we explain this? Is this really true? <clears throat> I mean, some have tried to read all these numbers kind of symbolically and figuratively, and sometimes there's some clues that make you think maybe that's true, but a more common explanation is um, that uh, conditions on the earth, apparently, before the flood, which we'll talk about next week, chapter 6, conditions on the earth before the flood apparently were just more favorable to a longer life. That somehow the, the weather and the, the climate and the atmosphere and the the prevalence of disease, it just it wasn't, as, it wasn't as lethal, it wasn't as fatal. It didn't present the risks to humanity that it has presented since the flood. And you know, just so you know that the scripture is grounded in reality, we do have this passage in Psalm 90. This is Moses, so many centuries later, and he says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So there's Moses saying that that's a typical lifespan in Moses' day, you know, many centuries before us, but many centuries after Genesis 5. And so things kind of level off and get to 70 or 80 years eventually. But back in these days, apparently people lived a really long time. Now, why is the writer sharing this with us and, and listing all of these lifespans? And I think the reason why is because he wants to make a point, and it's this, that it doesn't matter how long you live, you're still going to die. I mean, you could live to be almost a thousand years, just like Methuselah, but still, 
you're going to die and you're going to pass into the next life and you're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. Maybe you live 3,000 years. Okay, fine. You're still going to die and be faced with God and have to give an account for your life. It doesn't matter how long your life is. You know, you might be doing everything you can to prolong your life, and you should. It's good. Exercise well, eat well, take vitamins, do whatever you can to prolong your life. That's a good and worthy thing. But don't think that by doing that, somehow you're going to avoid death, because you're not. Maybe you get to live 122 years old, like Jean Calmont. Fine, but you're going to die. So my question is, how are you preparing for that? Are you ready for that day? How are you getting ready for that? I mean, when Mary and I went to China for the very first time, you know, we knew we were going to foreign territory. We were going someplace we'd never been before, the other side of the world. And I'm telling you, we spent a lot of time getting ready for that. I mean, we talked to people. We got insurance. We bought all kinds of things to take on the plane. We tried to prepare for being in a different culture. We got inoculations and shots. I mean, it took us weeks to get ready. Because we knew we were going somewhere we had never been before. One day you're going somewhere where you've never been before. The afterlife. You're passing from this life to the next. Are you getting ready? It's easy to just dismiss it. It's not a comfortable thing to think about. Thank God for the Bible that forces us to think about it. Here's Edward Pierce, a Puritan, he says, to walk with God here on earth while we live and to be ready to live with God forever in heaven when we come to die is the great work we have to do, the great concern we have to mind. It's your great concern. It's your biggest issue. (laughs) You've got a lot of things going on in your life, a lot of things that are concerning you, worrying you, things you're fearful of, but nothing is more important than getting ready for the day of your death. Now, the good news here is that we get a, a picture of an exception to this. So I'm saying that, yes, it's certain for you to die, but we get this guy named Enoch. And in verse 24, what does it say about Enoch? It says he walked with God. Does it say, and he died? Actually, no, it doesn't. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Somehow, I wish we had more explanation, but we don't, but somehow uh, Enoch was just kind of translated directly from the earth to heaven, and so he avoided a a normal death that the rest of us experience. And it's very interesting to think that there was another Enoch. You might remember, when we were in chapter 4, there was another Enoch at the beginning of chapter 4. Do you remember what Enoch did? Chapter 4 is, is, is the line of Cain. Chapter 5 is the line of Seth. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But in chapter 4, the line of Cain, there's an Enoch, and this Enoch built a city. A very impressive thing. Well, how many of you have built a city? <laughs> I haven't built a city. Enoch built a city. That's really great. But that was in the line of Cain, and now we get a different Enoch in chapter 5. And he didn't build any cities, but he walked with God. And he went to be with him when he died. The kind of unusual death that that he died. It's like the text is saying, as wonderful as it is to build a city, the more important thing for you is to walk with God on this earth and to be prepared for that day when you pass into the next life. The presence of Enoch here, it just tells us that 
there is an afterlife. There is something beyond the, the grave. And death is not the end. And in fact, God is the one who took Enoch. God is the one who can do something about death. He's the one who can triumph over it. He's the one who can give you victory over death so that you don't have to live in fear of it all your life. This is so important for us to hear as a church. And we've been dealing with death here, right? I mean, Eva Whitaker certainly wasn't expecting that over the Christmas season I'd be mourning her death. Mark Davis certainly didn't think that we'd be mourning his death. Uh, these are people who attended this church. I know a lot of you don't know them, but you know, relatively young people who both died over the Christmas season. But friends, there's hope in the face of death. And it's provided in the gospel. We get just a peek of it here with Enoch. But now we go to the third point, and this will be fleshed out better because the last thing here is that you're promised a redeemer. You're promised a redeemer. This is what gives life meaning, particularly as you look to the end of your life. Remember that everything we're reading here in Genesis as these chapters move forward, they're all an unfolding of the promise made in Genesis 3.15. I keep repeating that, but it's important to understand that we not miss that context. Remember Genesis 3.15, God's speaking to the serpent. He says, uh, the serpent, there's gonna be descendants from you, and those descendants are gonna be at enmity with the descendants of the woman, but there's gonna be a descendant of the woman who's gonna come and crush your head, serpent. So the serpent, the promise to the serpent, the line of descendants that come from the serpent, we would call it the ungodly line of people that goes through Cain. That's what we saw in chapter four. But through the woman, there's a godly line of descendants that goes through Seth and eventually will lead to a redeemer. So two entirely different lines that represent two kinds of mankind, the ungodly and the godly, the ones who look to God, the ones who flee from God. And so what we see here in chapter five is the line of Seth, not Cain. So this is the godly line. And now, notice this, we get to verse 28, and what happens? We get this guy named Lamech, verse 28. He lived 182 years, he fathered a son. But again, do you remember there was another Lamech, too, in chapter four? <laughs> do, do you remember him? Lamech, at the end of chapter four, he's the guy who came out and said, hey, there was a young guy who wounded me, and I killed him because I got my vengeance 77-fold because nobody messes with me. I am Lamech. Stay away. He's the guy representing the ungodly line of Cain who resorts to anger and violence. And now here's another Lamech, but this Lamech is in the line of Seth, and he's very different, isn't he? What does Lamech do? He's not filled with anger and violence and hatred and revenge. What he does is he has a son and he calls his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's referring to the effects of the curse there. He knows the world is cursed. It's hard to live in this world, it's painful, it's sad to live in this world, but now Lamech is having a son, his name is Noah, and he's saying Noah is the one who's gonna provide us relief and comfort from all this. In other words, Lamech is looking for the descendant of the woman. He's like, God said someone was gonna come who's gonna fix the problem. And Lamech is thinking, it's Noah. Noah's the one who's gonna do this. We're gonna find relief finally in God's promise. Lamech, in chapter five, hoping in God, trusting in him, 
walking in faith, depending on the promises of God, being assured that they're going to be fulfilled, that's the godly line. But Lamech in chapter 4, no regard for God, just violence, hatred, and vengeance. Well, of course we know that Noah is not the one who ultimately brings the comfort and the peace and the relief, is he? We find out as we continue to read the Bible, it's not the son of Lamech, but the promise will continue. There's going to be a descendant of Noah and a descendant of his descendant and on and on and on. It's going to go throughout hundreds of years until the son of Joseph comes, until the son of David comes, until the son of God comes, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he's the one who will bring the relief from the curse that we're longing for. He's the one finally who does it. He brings us relief from the guilt of our shame. He brings us relief from our transgressions and the condemnation that we deserve. And he brings us relief from the shadow of death that hangs over our heads all of our lives. In Jesus Christ, there's relief from that. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to flee from it. You don't have to live in anxiety of the coming day of your death. Here's Jesus speaking in John 11 to Martha, and Martha is mourning the loss of her brother Lazarus, and here's what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The way you prepare for your death, friends, is you turn from your sin and you believe this Jesus. You receive him as your savior. You, you give yourself to him. And know that because he was resurrected on the third day and overcame the powers of death that you have that same promise of resurrection for you. And you can know that your death is not the end for you. That there is an eternity of bliss and joy and gladness with your savior and with all of God's people promised to you in the gospel. That's how you get ready. And that's your chief responsibility in this life, friends. Get ready and go to Jesus. Archibald Alexander, great theologian, just a guy who's just so smart. You know, he just wrote so many books in the 1800s and a professor at Princeton Seminary, you know, just filled with knowledge. And there he was on his deathbed and he was talking about all that he knows and he says, you know what, for all of my theology, it basically boils down to this. On his deathbed, he says this, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the essence of it all. That was his hope on his deathbed. And Charles Hodge, colleague of his, Hodge was in the room and he said, you know, I've never seen a deathbed where there was so little of death. <laughs> because he was looking forward to eternal life on his deathbed. Friends, that's how I want to die. Looking to Jesus with that hope. And that's how I want you to die also. That's my prayer. That's my hope. God, we thank you so much for the hope that you have given to us in your word. Thank you for the promise of eternal life in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you have swallowed up death and victory and you have removed its sting forever. We thank you. We praise you. Just help us to live well in obedience to you as we prepare for our day of death. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.